I need a volunteer who thinks that they can identify the real thing. And someone who's not afraid of sugar. All right. Now, now I can get some hands. Any hands? Anybody want to volunteer? Now you're all afraid because of sugar? Okay, come on up, bud. I have before you two different cups. One is filled with the real Coke. The other is filled with cola soda. Obviously, a wannabe. All right? Now, in no particular order, you get to take a sip of each one and see which is the real Coke. Let's see if you can do it. That's cup number one. Which one do you think it is? This is the real Coke? You were so right. <laughs> proof, proof that you've probably had too much sugar in your life. However, it is, it is relatively easy most of the time to identify the real thing. Whether it's soda or people. As we're going through the book of Mark, we find ourselves in chapter 1, uh, verses 21 to 45. And there are some people who have encountered the real thing. Some disciples, the first disciples that Jesus called, have seen Jesus, have recognized him as the real thing. Jesus said, come follow me. They said, let's go. And that's where we find ourselves as we move into this passage that we're studying today. But as we go into this passage, there are going to be some different expectations of Jesus. And I think it's interesting how we can set some different agendas, our agendas and expectations on something or someone that's inappropriate. If I thought that drinking Coke was going to make me popular or wealthy, I would be very disappointed because that's not Coke's agenda. It just has a different agenda to take all of your money and to give you refreshment in return. That's their agenda, right? And yet, sometimes we do end up putting our own agenda on other things or other people. So let's dive into the book. And uh, we will start in verse 21, where we read, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Well, the they that we're referring to is Jesus and the first disciples that he called. And they burst onto the scene for the start of Jesus' ministry in rural Israel. Capernaum was uh, a little town. You may not be able to see that exactly, but there's a body of water up at the top called Lake Galilee or the Sea of Galilee. And uh, Capernaum was up there, not too far away from where Jesus uh, grew up, but a really long distance away from the center of everything, Jerusalem. Right, it would be like starting something in Yakima versus Seattle if we were comparing it to Washington. It's just kind of a strange choice, it seems. But that's where Jesus decided to start. And uh, what better place than these synagogues 
to introduce them to God, right? Synagogues were kind of like church for Jews. It was a place to congregate, to learn about God. And so Jesus introduces God to them, God in the flesh. And Jesus begins teaching. Now, the way he taught was different, different than the scribes, right? Scribes were lawyers. They were experts in the law, law being uh, essentially the Bible. The first five books of the Bible were the law of Moses. And so these scribes were the experts in interpreting that law, what it meant. They'd heard scribes before, but Jesus' teaching was different. Right? It would be like the people that they might normally hear up in this kind of rural area in, uh, in Israel. If I got up on stage and started talking to you about football, I could share a few things with you. Right? It's all borrowed information, but I could share some stuff with you. I'd have to reference a lot. It'd be fine. Now, if Pastor Mark got up and started sharing football with you, that would be a different story. He played football, actually played football. He's been coaching for a long time, loves the game. That would be a different level. Now, if Russell Wilson came and started talking to you about football, that's kind of the level, right? Russell Wilson knows football. He is football. Right, so when Jesus starts teaching, he knows God's word because he is God's word. And there's something different. He teaches, they say, with authority. There was no need to reference anybody else. There was no need to say, well, Rabbi so-and-so thinks it means this. Jesus says, he opens scripture and says, this stuff is coming true now, right? And, and so they were astonished, amazed that Jesus would have so much authority in teaching Scripture. One could say that he has authority over the mental realm. And then things get awkward, right? And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. Well, there are various forms of unclean or uncleanliness in this passage. Uh, This form is the presence of an unclean spirit, a demon, if you will. Now, how that manifested itself is not said. Maybe the giveaway was the man referring to himself in the third person. Starting to get a little M. Night Shyamalan on us. But the demon knows exactly who Jesus is. He identifies Jesus. Not only is he Jesus of Nazareth, where he's from, but the Holy One of God, who he is. The demons have a spiritual awareness, which is something that escapes many people who interacted with Jesus at that time, especially some of the religious leaders. And this unclean spirit or unclean spirits have this awareness that the end is approaching for them. 
God's long-term plan, as he's revealed in Scripture, is for Satan and his demons and those who reject Jesus Christ to go to hell. And it appears like the demon is thinking, this is the time. They're not destroyed yet, though. That's 2,000 years later, and demonic activity still exists. Now, I have to admit, I don't have a lot of experience in this realm. In college, I knew someone who uh, had a friend who said that she could essentially see demons. It freaked her out. Uh, I knew a pastor, um, talked with him, same kind of time frame, who for some reason or another was involved in um, or had people coming to his church who were oppressed by demons. I know that this week, Pastor Drew got a chance to talk and pray with someone who came into the church fearful about a demon following him. But this is very real. And I don't know exactly what it means for me not to have a lot of experience with this. Maybe I am just blissfully unaware. But this is a real thing. It was real then, it's real now, and Jesus is still the only answer. What Jesus says to the demon is interesting, though. Right? Be silent. This isn't the first time that Jesus says this. It's not the first time in this passage. It shows up actually three times, so we're going we're gonna to move on and, and discuss that a little bit later. But as we keep reading, we find that the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Well, Jesus' first altercation, at least described in the book of Mark, is a no contest because of authority. The demon can't do anything other than what Jesus tells it to do. So they've heard Jesus teaching, they've discovered that he has authority in the mental realm, right, in his teaching over scripture. Now Jesus is demonstrating that he has authority over the spiritual realm. They saw it. They saw Jesus exercise a demon, and they are amazed. So now Jesus is famous, right? He's a bit of a celebrity in rural Israel. And immediately, remember in Mark, everything happens immediately, right? And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. This is an interesting reminder about the call to discipleship, because Simon, later to be known as Peter, when answering the call of Jesus, had a family, at least a wife, an extended family, I was living with them. Right now, I, she seemed to be on board later on in, in, uh, in ministry. Peter took uh, his wife along on missionary trips, but can you, can you imagine that conversation at first, right? You did what? 
You quit your job? Right, well, at least your brother Andrew can pick up the slack. Wait, he quit too? Can your homeless preacher friend just conjure up some fish or something? You know, it's like, actually, actually. Um, but no, there's, there's a ton of questions, right, in this, in this passage that Mark doesn't answer. He's just very brief. He moves through the text, highlights the important things. But there's so many questions, right? When they, when they came to Simon's house, did they know that his mother-in-law was ill? Had she been ill for a long time? I don't know. How did they tell Jesus, right? You know, you might want to stay away from her because she might be contagious. Or, or did they tell her hoping that Jesus, or tell Jesus hoping that he would do something about it? Who knows? What's important is Jesus' response and Simon's mother-in-law's response. That's what Mark wants to highlight, and for good reason. Jesus heals her. He actually, the, the language is lifted her up here. It's almost like raising her up. She was perhaps on death's doorstep, and he raised her up. Sort of this picture, language that can foretell what's going to be happening with Jesus and all those who follow him. But he lifts her up, and what does she do? She begins to serve. That's so awesome. What an amazing response. It really shouldn't be amazing. I mean, wouldn't you want to serve someone who saved your life? And yet when I say that out loud, that seems to hit a little closer to home than I'm comfortable with because Jesus has saved my life. And yet more often than not, what I want to pursue is not following Jesus, but my own agenda. Now, if Jesus wants to come along in my agenda, that's fine with me, but that's my tendency. Well, that evening, at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. That evening at sundown, right? So these things had occurred on the Sabbath day, which for Jews was a day of rest. And culturally, there were a lot of, uh, a lot of regulations, codes, whatever you want to call it, guidelines about what constituted work. You weren't supposed to work on that day. And so there were, there were even guidelines about how many steps you would be able to take before it constituted work on the Sabbath. And so it's, it's important to note that this is sundown, right? The Sabbath ends at sundown, and so now... Now the gates are open. I can walk as much as I want. I can travel as far as I want. I can bring however many friends or family members or anyone else who needs Jesus and we can all find him and be healed. Right? And so Jesus had already demonstrated authority over the mental realm. He's already demonstrated authority over the spiritual realm. With the healings, he's demonstrated authority over the physical realm. And so everybody wants a piece of this. The whole town, it says, 
know, it's possible that's a little bit of a hyperbole, but, but there were a lot of people there outside Simon's door. That's another conversation, right, that might have happened between him and his wife. But Jesus, it says, healed many. Now, I don't think we can take that to be, I'm going to heal you and not you. It's a way of saying he healed everyone, and there were a lot. Jesus' compassion and authority merge together so that he provides healing for whoever needed it. And you'll notice again, he still wanted the demons to keep silent because they knew him. Again, we'll pick that up just a little bit later. So let's keep on going. So after that whole day and evening, what we find in verse 35, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. People are exhausting. Ministry is tiring. I know it doesn't say this specifically in this text, but it's clear in other areas. Jesus got tired. Yeah, he was fully God. He was also fully man. And so what did he do? What was his response? To quit? No. He didn't quit. He got renewed by spending time with the Father, to be rejuvenated, to maintain that close connection. The cost of discipleship is high and can be exhausting. We can take a cue from Jesus as to how to renew ourselves when we think we can't give any more. Here's the thing. The Bible is funny. Like, if we can't appreciate some of the humor in Scripture, then we're missing some of this. This is actually a really comedic story. Because here's what's happening. Jesus is out praying with the Father, and it looks like the disciples interrupt him. Jesus is gathering strength through his relationship with the Father. And the next leaders of the movement called Christianity are acting like they're on entourage. First century edition. Like, hey, everybody's looking for you. We're all looking for you. We're with the cool guy. Let's go. We got a ton of stuff to do. Like, everybody's looking for you. And Jesus is like... Yeah, I didn't tell you where I was going, right? That's why you couldn't find me. I wanted to be alone with the Father. But Jesus says, all right, I'll go back and sign some autographs. No, he doesn't actually say that. He doesn't say that at all. He says something really surprising. And he said to them, let's go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that's why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. This must have flabbergasted the disciples who were with him, right? Like, wait, all of a sudden now we're popular. There's, there's, the whole city's outside of our house. This is awesome. 
we're finally famous. And Jesus is like, yep, time to go. We're done here. So that he can keep preaching. Yes, his ministry involved healing. But Jesus knew his agenda, and he was moving purposefully through life to accomplish it. Again, healings are incredible. Don't misunderstand. What a difference for those people. And we should continue to pray for healings today. But Mark wants to be clear about the purpose of Jesus' incarnation. The healings were life-changing. The message is world-changing. And Jesus knew that. He knew exactly what he was about and exactly what he needed to do. Now notice, he didn't stop healing. He continued to heal and to cast out demons because he was compassionate. And this last story in the passage demonstrates his compassionate nature as well. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. This man's conversation with Jesus is really grounded, literally and figuratively. It's in just a a couple of sentences, so much is revealed, right? He asked Jesus. He didn't demand of Jesus. It says he was imploring. He's humble. He's literally on his knees before Jesus. He's bold, In approaching Jesus, he had leprosy. That wasn't done. If you had leprosy, you were supposed to be outside everyone. So he was bold, but he was also appropriately conditional. If you will. He's full of faith. Right? Not if you can, if you will. And I think there's a pretty strong expectation that he thinks Jesus might want to do this. And he's also worshipful. Right Again, it's not a a question of whether you can. It's whether you want to. He, He knows where the power resides. Jesus has the authority, the ability to make him clean. And in all of that, he's correct. Now, leprosy wasn't uncommon at that time. It was typically viewed as a disease that only God could heal because it was often viewed as a consequence for sin. Leviticus uh, chapter 13 tells us what the life of a leper would be like. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. This was a catastrophic disease because it separated you from essentially everything. It robbed a person of their health, probably their job, their family, their identity. And so this approach 
of the leper to Jesus was a little scandalous and socially unacceptable, but where else is he going to go? And Jesus' response is about as scandalous. He touches him. He touches him. Leprosy is a skin disease, right? This is not something that you typically do. But rather than being concerned with the leper's contagious nature of his disease, one commentator pointed out that it's Jesus' holiness that is contagious and makes the leper clean. And then he does something interesting again. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as proof to them. Well, even though the leper was immediately made clean, there's still a process to go through before he can be um, reintroduced into uh, society and, and fellowship again. But for the third time, we see this command of Jesus to keep things secret. Don't tell anyone. It mirrors his command to the unclean spirits and the demons to not say anything. Now, while it might be understandable to think that Jesus doesn't want an endorsement from demons as to his nature, still the desire to remain under the radar and kind of obscure seems odd. But it does reveal something about Jesus' character and his methodology. It seems like it was a very strategic decision. I mean, it was, it was Jesus, so it was on purpose. But the idea of being the Messiah at that day and age brought along a lot of connotation of military and political deliverance. So if Jesus were just to pop down to Jerusalem, say, I am the Messiah, well, it's, it's true, but it wasn't going to come true in the way that people wanted or expected. Again, that's fitting someone else's agenda onto Jesus. And so that would probably shorten up the timeline quite a bit because I am sure the Romans would be very interested in Jesus at that point if the thought was he was going to overthrow Roman rule. And Jesus was working on a timeline. He was training disciples, teaching them. And that takes a while, not because of Jesus, but because we're all kind of dense. It takes us a while. So Jesus spent three years doing ministry with his followers so that they could carry on the work when he was resurrected. He didn't want to be just a celebrity miracle worker. Right? He loves people. He was more than willing to heal them, but he didn't want that to be the extent of his ministry. Remember, he had priorities. The message was the thing that was going to change people's lives permanently. And that would change the world. So he didn't want people to think that that's all that he was about, or that he was trying to make a buck off of healings or the show. Right? When people found out what he could do, 
Guess what started happening? Everybody brought their agendas to Jesus. And Jesus wanted to make sure that people understood what's required of, of man is faith. Not just amazement or astonishment at healings and miracles, but faith in who Jesus actually is and a relationship. And also the fullness of Jesus' ministry and identity was not going to be fully recognized until his death and resurrection. And so it's at the very end of his ministry that everything is going to come together anyway. Well, this, I, this idea of secrecy continues. Jesus says this frequently. He speaks in parables elsewhere, doesn't explain things. I mean, it's, it's kind of a strange method if you're looking for fame and publicity, which, again, is not what Jesus was after. But interestingly enough, his commands for silence sometimes resulted in the exact opposite. Because the last verses of our passage, in verse 45, he said, but he went out and began to talk freely about it. And to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Now, it is a little hard to blame the guy too much for disobeying Jesus, because this was really exciting news in his world. He's healed, right? He may have even thought he was helping Jesus. Although we do need to be really, really careful when we start thinking that we know better than Jesus or that we can help God do his job by disobeying, <laughs> uh, we need to check ourselves. This man's actions, although maybe well-intentioned, actually made Jesus' job more difficult. Right? He couldn't go anywhere because the word had spread so quickly. But as one pastor pointed out, this man was told to tell no one about Jesus, and yet he told everyone. Christians today are told to tell everyone about Jesus and often tell no one. Something to chew on. Jesus came in with authority. His teaching over demons, over sickness, he has authority over all aspects of life, mental, spiritual, physical. The big question that looms over us is, do we accept that authority over us? Because like a, a parent being an authority over a child, the child can lean out from that authority or even walk away from that authority even though there's no question whether a parent has that position of authority. And so as we think through this passage, as we meditate on it, everybody has an agenda. I have an agenda, you have an agenda, Jesus had an agenda. And it occurred to me that in all of the interactions with people described in this passage, it seems like the only person that didn't have their own agenda 
was Simon's mother-in-law. She didn't seem, or at least it's not recorded, that she wanted something from Jesus. Everybody else did. They wanted to be healed, understandably, but they wanted to be healed. They wanted to be amazed or astonished by new teaching. They wanted to be entertained. They wanted to be in Jesus' entourage. Simon's mother-in-law, once healed, set about aligning herself with Jesus' agenda, serving him and others. How simple does that get? Early on in the passage, we had people who were astonished, amazed by, by Jesus and what he was teaching and doing. But did they miss the point? It's one thing to be amazed. It's another to come and follow him. It's one thing to be astonished. Cool trick, Jesus. What's next? It's quite another to be aligned with Jesus. The point is, Jesus is the Son of God, not just a show. Jesus is about the number of lives, not about the number of likes. Jesus is about power, not just popularity. Jesus is about authority, not just attention. And so just like it would be very inappropriate to assume that Coke is going to solve all my personal problems, make me handsome, popular, wealthy, because that's not its agenda, It's inappropriate to force Jesus' agenda into our own. It is much, much better to align ourselves with Jesus' agenda and to come and follow him.